0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in
1: person. Good morning. Wipe the sleep out of your eyes. Get yourself a cup of coffee. Father Joseph's just doing a couple things. We'll begin in prayer, but before we do, I'll just make one last plug, because July 1... July 1st is the beginning of our fifth year as an independent educational. Yeah, you can applaud. And when I hear the name Rehoboam mentioned in asking questions like the other night, King Rehoboam, and people know who we're talking about, that makes my heart very happy. Father Joseph, can you come up and lead us in prayer, please? If you please stand. Blessed is our God at all times,
2: with now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Blessed are you,
1: O Christ our God, who have filled the fishermen with wisdom by sending down the Holy Spirit
0: upon them. And who through
2: them have caught in your net the whole
1: world, O lover of mankind, glory to you. Bow down your heads to the Lord. May the blessing of the Lord and his mercy come upon you, through his grace and his love for mankind at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. My brother has a lot to cover today, so welcome him back, Subdeacon Sebastian Carnazzo.
2: So picking up where we left off last time, Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16. This is an extremely important part of the synoptic gospel. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic. That is, you can see them together. Synopsis is a word that was used to refer to a way to look at these three gospels on one page. So they're called synoptic because they're very similar. You can follow their order, their structure very similar. Whereas John, the structure is different. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all see Caesarea Philippi, this proclamation that Jesus is the Christ as this climactic event in the Galilean ministry. And it's the close of the Galilean ministry. From here, Jesus will begin to work his way towards Jerusalem. He'll be moving around Galilee a little bit here in the next chapter or two. You'll see what he's doing here. He's no longer spending time in Galilee. He's no longer getting in a boat going back and forth across the sea. That part of the ministry is over. He is now going to work his way towards Jerusalem. He has a few things to do along the way. And that's why he doesn't, you know, get in a taxi and just take off. He's got some stuff to do. Very important preparations for what's going to happen there in Jerusalem, even back here in Galilee. So chapter 16, as the kind of climax of this first part of the gospel, again, the parallels in Mark or Luke, the same. They are way, way up north, Caesarea Philippi, way, way north. And Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? They give some different options. And he says, yeah, but who do you, my 12, say that I am? I've been with you three years. Three years, you've heard my words, you've seen my works. What do you say? And Simon, as you would expect, is the one who opens his mouth and speaks. Right? Remember we talked about that loose cannon image, right? Everyone knows someone like that. who just They speak their mind, whatever's on their mind. Uh, so Simon does that. And you can imagine the rest of the disciples, they were wanting to say it, but they didn't. I'm sure some were thinking, I hope he's right. Oh, there goes Simon again. So he says, you are the Christ, the Son of living God. And Jesus says, that's right. Good job, 12. Very good. They realize that he is the Christ. He is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. He is the great Messiah they have been waiting for. He then turns to Simon and says... Blessed are you, Sainabar Bariona. for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This isn't the earthly reasoning. The earthly reasoning is what got everyone to, you know, John the Baptist maybe, Jeremiah, maybe one of the prophets. He says, no, this is a revelation from God. This is a special gift. And I say to you, you are Petros, you are a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church why does he say that? What is the meaning of that? A lot of people will read this passage, you know, Baptists and Catholics start arguing about it, but what's going on here? Most people lose the big picture here and get embroiled in a post-reformational debate. What's happening here in the context? Remember, Jesus has been identified as the Christ, the King, the one they've been waiting for. And so this should recall for you, if you look in the context here, this should recall for you the whole first part of the Gospel. And should recall for you 2 Samuel chapter 7. David had brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and he had wanted to build a house for the Lord. And God said to David, through Nathan the prophet, Your son, I will raise up a son after you. He shall be your son, and he shall be my son. That is, God would take care of him like an adopted son. God would take care of him. And when he messes up, he says, I will not treat him like I did Saul. I won't kick him out of the household. I will chastise him. I will correct him when he messes up. He will treat him like a father to a son. So who is the first fulfillment of this? We know, as we talked about it last time in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, we see in a number of other places in the Old Testament that Solomon is the fulfillment of this. You know the story in 1 Kings chapter 6 through 8 that Solomon built the temple Solomon even concludes the building of the temple with a reference back to 2 Samuel 7. He says, now, O God, you have done what you promised you would do through my father David. I have built the house, like you said. Why does he now turn to Simon and say, I'm going to build the house, I'm going to build the church? And why does he say he's going to do it on him? What does that mean? Well, this again, you have to understand the Old Testament, remember the temple was built on the rock of Moriah. Solomon had built the temple on top of the rock of Moriah, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, the place where David had told him, build it right here on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Why did he do that? Well, it's recorded in the previous book in 1 Chronicles 21. Why did he do that? We well, don't have time to go back and look at all that stuff. We talked about that before briefly, and most of you are familiar with those stories. Why is he turn to Simon and say that now? Because this is 2 Samuel 7 is now playing itself out here in the text. He is the son of God. He is not simply the son of David who is the adopted son of God, but rather, as you see in Matthew chapter 1, he is the natural son of God from all eternity who is the adopted son of David. And therefore, the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. In a way, they couldn't even imagine it. And so he's building the house now that David had wanted to build and that God promised the son of David would build. But just like he is not the adopted son of like Solomon was of God, but the natural son. This is not a temple that will eventually be destroyed where the gates of Hades, the power of death, will overpower it. This is one that will go on forever. It will live forever. It is a living temple made out of living stones. And this is why he says this to Simon. So why does he not build the temple on the rock of Moriah, a rock, but rather on human flesh? Because the temple is human flesh. The New Covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 and following, very important passage, the New Covenant will be in human flesh, not on stone tablets. And so the Word of God standing there speaking right now is the New Covenant in Himself. In the Incarnation, we have the New Covenant. God and man reconciled. Some passages that are related to this that you should be familiar with and you should think of the New Testament when you hear this language in Matthew chapter 16, you should think of passages like, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. St. Paul says the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets, that's of old, and the apostles. Right? The ecclesia, the church, the congregation of God has been there from the Old Testament since the time of Adam to the present moment and today. Right? Though joined to God through different covenants at different stages. He says, Jesus Christ, St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, is the cornerstone. So the church is built upon, he says, not only the prophets of the old, but the people of God, the church is built upon the apostles and Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. St. Peter himself says in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, he says, The church is built upon Jesus, the cornerstone, the foundation of this new living temple, the temple for the living God. And St. Peter himself, the one who's sitting there character in this story in Matthew 16, says that you are the stones of the temple of the living God. We're talking about a fleshy covenant, a new covenant that is different than the one of old. Very different. And this makes more sense as you continue on through the rest of the story. How's that going to happen? Well, we're going to see. as we get to ask the apostles and the Pauline epistles, if we had time together to look at all that stuff, you'd see what Paul was talking about, why Peter says those things he says in his epistle. He's talking about the initiation, the mysteries of initiation, baptism, chrismation, or confirmation, and the Eucharist of entering into the temple of God, becoming part of the people of God. And how does that all happen? Again, the rest of the New Testament talks about that. So make sure you've written down for yourself Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 and 20, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5, and then also Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31 and following. You should have that memorized. Very important text for the New Testament. All right, now in verse 18 he we just talked about this, he's he talking about building the house, and then he says Verse 19, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Remember, kingdom of heaven, we're not talking about the pearly gates. It's from this line, verse 19, that you get all those really silly jokes, right? Peter's saying at the pearly gates, a lawyer, an accountant, and a doctor walk up, and <laughs> you've heard the jokes, right? Some of you have heard them in sermons. All right, so what's going on there? Well, he's not talking about kingdom of heaven. When you hear the word kingdom of heaven now, that phrase, you shouldn't be thinking of fluffy clouds and harps and angels and things, and Peter with in front of pearly gates, you should be thinking of the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of God is not just up in fluffy clouds, it is real, it is on earth, and here we are. Right? It is there, it is here, it's heaven and earth joined together. That's what the new covenant's all about. So, the kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel. God is the king, we are his kingdom. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were his kingdom. And as St. Paul says. We are the Israel. We are the Israel of God. What is he talking about? Keys and binding and loosing. The language here, again, is very Davidic. Just like 2 Samuel 7, we heard that echo here in this building language. You are the Christ, and living God, and therefore he starts building. He talks about building something. That should remind you of 2 Samuel 7. Unfortunately, like I said, people usually run off into Baptist, Catholic debates and, and uh, miss the point of what's going on. The next verse here, also likewise, people run from there into all sorts of post-reformational arguments about the role of the papacy and things, but what is happening here in the context? Keep it grounded there. Only then can you have a fruitful conversation about what it means, therefore, today. What does it mean in the context? He says, he's talking about binding and loosing and keys. The language here should remind you, and it surely would have reminded them, of a very important role in the Old Testament, and that is the al ha al ha the over-the-house. This is the prime minister in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. The king had ministers, and among the ministers in the Davidic kingdom, there was one who had a special role. He was one of the ministers. He was not the king, and yet among the ministers, he had a very special responsibility. And so, the prime minister, not like the English prime minister today, but the prime minister back when the king was actually real in England, The prime minister had a special role, and he was one of the ministers, and yet a special role among them. And we'll see this, we see Peter coming into this role here. In Isaiah chapter 22, you see the installation of one of the Ahabis, and this is in Isaiah chapter 22. This comes up in the modern Roman lectionary cycle, in your third year, when Matthew 16 comes up as the Gospel, and Isaiah 22 comes up as well. Isaiah chapter 22 verse 15. What's going on here in the context? The Assyrian Empire is on their way. The Assyrian Empire was the most ferocious army of the time and probably in the history of mankind. The Assyrian army is coming with all of their forces to take Jerusalem. And Hezekiah is a bit worried. There's no way he can withstand them. He doesn't have the chariots. He doesn't have the army. It's impossible. It's like when the Roman Empire came upon Jerusalem in 70 A.D. There was there's no way to defend there, it was impossible. Hopefully you can hang out for a while and save them off for a while, but eventually they're going to conquer. So the Assyrian Empire is coming with all their forces to attack Jerusalem. Judah is basically limited to a, a little city state at this point, just up on top of the Jebusite hill. And Hezekiah is running around checking the water sources, making sure the water is going to come in. Everything he can do, what little he can do. And most importantly, he's praying. While he's praying and asking Isaiah for help and intercession, he goes to the prophet Isaiah, what should I do? Tell me what to do. I'll do whatever God says to do. His Ahabai, Shebna, is off in the hills carving a tomb for himself. And you think, well, that's kind of depressing. No, in the ancient world, this was a monument. In fact, in the Greek, it's the same word, tomb, monument, a memorial. Where we get our English word. It's a way you'd be made immortal. People would remember you. They'd walk by and see that beautiful thing of Egypt, the pyramids today. Right? Those are tombs, memorials, monuments. So people remember how great they were. So he's off making himself a monument, a tomb. He probably concluded he was going to die. and so Anyway, he's busy building this monument for himself, this tomb. And God says to Isaiah, go to Shebna, this is verse 15, go to Shebna, the steward, who is Al-Habaith, in the RSV there, over the household. And say to him, what have you here, that you have hewn here a tomb for yourself? You've hewn a tomb on the height and carved a habitation for yourself in the rock. And it's that image of stability. He's made immortal. Even if he dies, people will always remember how great he was. And he says, Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you round and round and throw you like a ball in a wide land. There you shall die and there shall be the splendid chariots you shame of your master's house. So he's going to die out in the wilderness in the midst of the battle. The most horrible thing that can happen, the most horrible curse in the Old Testament is to die out in the wilderness and be eaten by birds and never buried. They believe your spirit would just hover on the surface wandering, never going to Sheol, to the place of the dead. So, He says, that's where you're going to die, because of what you've done. So then he says, in verse 19, I will thrust you from your office, and you shall be cast down from your station. Verse 20, in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and bind your girdle on him, and will commit your authority to him, and he shall be a father to his inhabitants. That's it, he will take care of them like you were supposed to be doing. Verse 22, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall up, open, and none shall shut. He shall shut, and none shall open. If I give someone a key to my house, they have power in my house. I'm giving them some of my authority. And the al had special power among the ministers. The language here we see in Matthew 16 is being borrowed from Isaiah 22. Eliakim replaces Shebna as the Al-Haba'ith. Poor Shebna. What happened to that guy? Well, he just gets demoted to recorder, so he must have repented by the time the Assyrians came. But Eliakim, we see when the Assyrian Empire finally comes with all of its forces, Jerusalem and surrounds the city, Eliakim is now the al and goes out and speaks for the king. All right, so going back to Matthew 16 now, what is happening here? Simon's being given a special role, and we see this in Acts the Apostles. When the apostles get together, Simon speaks to them and says, look, we need to replace Judas. He helps organize them, to tie them together. He's the unifier. He speaks to them. And when the crowds ask questions of the apostles, Simon is the one that speaks for them. He's the spokesman. As Jesus says, the thing which will unify them in Luke's gospel. Now, verse 21. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes be killed on the third day. I'd highlight that maybe with orange or pink or something, you're going to see from here on out in the rest of the Gospel, over and over, almost every chapter, you're going to see Jesus say this to His disciples. He's now preparing them. From this moment forward, He begins to prepare them for what's coming. Now, He's alluded to this stuff before. He's given parables from the Jonah and the belly of the whale and all that. So He's alluded to it, but here He begins, Matthew says, to say it openly to His disciples and to prepare them. And Peter, again, This is the character of Peter. And Peter began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid! No way! I mean, things were going so well. We're going to go to Jerusalem, yes, but we're going to kill Pilate. We're going to kick the Romans in the shins. We're going to establish the empire. The kingdom of God will be reestablished. This is not how it's supposed to work. You're not going to die. No, no, no. And Jesus reveals to Simon the rest that the way the battle is going to go and the way he will be victorious is through death, because his battle is not against the Roman Empire. His battle is against forces that they can't even see. His battle is against sin and death. And through his death, he will trample down death. We'll see. So then, he says to his disciples, if you want to come with me to Jerusalem, that's great. If you want to come to the battle, to the war that we're going to, but you better pick up your cross and follow me. That would be the equivalent of today saying, pick up your electric chair and follow me. Or, you better sit down in your electric chair and get ready for someone to flip the switch. The cross was, at that time, this was a horrible way to die. This is how the Roman Empire used to execute people. We know it, when Jesus was executed, there were two thieves right next to him. Some pretty scary language for his disciples to hear this. Jesus telling him he's going to die when he gets to Jerusalem. And furthermore, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to die too. What kind of battle is he talking about? He's beginning to reveal to them that there's a bigger battle going on. He answers in verse 26 and 27, he answers the question that Simon and the rest are wondering about. How is this a victory? Why would this happen? This isn't right. And he answers that. You can see this in verse 26 and following. For what will it profit a profit of man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a gain a man if in return for his life? Verse 27, for the Son of Man is to come with his angels. So right now I'm going with you guys. But the Son of Man will come. Daniel chapter seven, verse thirteen. The Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man for what he has done. Make sure you highlight this, verse twenty eight. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Hmm. We heard that before. Make sure you have a note for yourself there, back to chapter 10, verse 23. He told them, I tell you, you will not have gone through all the villages of Israel before the Son of Man comes. You're going to try to get through a lot of them, but I'm coming back before you finish. Well, when is that? Well, By the time you get to the death of John the Apostle, all of Israel has been evangelized. Every village has heard. There are Christians in every village. So we're talking about the first century. Somewhere in the middle of the first century. 50s, 60s, something like that. And exactly, if you look at 70 AD, which is coming, what he's talking about is somewhere around the 50s and 60s. Chapter 17. And now we begin an introduction to what's coming now. Again, there's the little bits of hints to that, but now you see a parallel text to the baptism. Jesus began his Galilean ministry with the baptism. We see this in Acts, the apostles, we see Pauline epistles, over and over they refer to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry as the baptism in the Jordan, It was when it started. But now we come to a new beginning, a new era here, and this starts with the Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to him, Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booze here one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, Mo- again, that's Peter, right? Just begins to speak. And then, as he's speaking, the glory cloud of God overshadows them. What's happening? If you go back to Malachi, remember Malachi had said you need to keep the law of Moses and Elijah's coming. But what was Malachi preparing the people for? What were they actually waiting for? Were they waiting for the coming of the Messiah? They were waiting for the glory cloud of God to return to the temple. And they associated the coming of that with the coming of the Messiah would be simultaneous. So, What we see when John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah, as Gabriel says in Luke chapter 1. We see a preliminary fulfillment of those words of Malachi. But now we have not John the Baptist, we have Elijah coming. There a reference back to Malachi, to Moses and the law. Here Moses appears. There the spirit of God comes down from the clouds and alights on his head a sign that he is the Messiah, right? First Samuel chapter 16, the Spirit of God comes down upon David, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Here, he shines with the glory of God. The one like a son of man coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving all power, all dominion, all glory. And so what happens here is we begin to see that Jesus is the Messiah. They know that, chapter 16. And now, he reveals to them something that was Not so clear. And that is that the Messiah they've all been waiting for is God returning to his temple. Because that's how it began in the first place. There was only one king over Israel. But they asked for a human king. And now they have one king again who is both God and man. What do these tents have to do with anything? The exact same theme. The Feast of Tabernacles was the feast of God dwelling among his people. And Simon begins to perceive this and says, it's time for the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the time. It's all being fulfilled. Zechariah the prophet in chapter 14, of the book of Zechariah, said that this was the one feast that would go on into eternity, the Feast of Tabernacles, God dwelling among his people forever. Why is he showing in this right now? As we sing in the Kentuckian of the Transfiguration... He did this so that they would know he suffered willingly. Why is that important? Two things. In The context, why did he show them this? So that when they see from here, he's going to begin to look very weak, especially when he begins to sweat, even blood. And they tie him up and beat him, and he's speechless, and then they see him hanging on a cross and then take his last breath, and he's dead. What happened? This is not how it was supposed to be. Where is the Jesus that walked on water, that multiplied breads that always had an answer for the Pharisees? What happened? And so while they're standing there, some of them hiding in the bushes, of course, when the apostles, at least the women disciples, standing there, they know that whatever's going on, this is happening according to his will. John shows this a little differently. John gives us a hint that Jesus did this over and over again from here all the way to when he was taken captive in Jerusalem that he continuously showed them his power, his glory, his divinity so that they would know that he did this according to his own will. In John's Gospel, they come into the Garden of Gethsemane and they're looking for him. He says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. Right? In Greek, me," just I am. But a reference back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 the translation in the Septuagint of Eche Asher Eche, I am who I am, Egui Mi Ho'on, I am he who is. And you can say, well, that's just a coincidence, maybe? All you've got to do is look at the next verse. Everyone falls flat on the ground when he says that. Imagine the disciples listening to this, watching. Hey, Peter, put your sword back. This is going to be an easy one. Look at that. He just spoke and they all fell over. And then he says, if I am the one you're seeking, then, then take me. And let the rest go. And of course they go into the bushes. So <laughs> Jesus reveals to them over and over and over again his power, his divinity, especially in the second half of the gospel. He show them the Messiah is God. And so therefore they know that what is happening is happening according to his own will. Why would he do that? Because he is fighting a bigger battle. He's not fighting the Romans. He's not fighting Pontius Pilate. He's not fighting Herod. They are just soldiers. They're part of a. They have no idea what they are in the bigger battle. He is fighting the real battle that has been there since the time of the Garden of Eden, since the time of the creation. He is fighting sin and death. And he will conquer that, as we'll see. Chapter 17 continues with a question then in verse 9 of John the Baptist. Why then do they say that Elijah is supposed to come first? This is out of order. And again, this shows you the chronology of what's happening. You can see into the mind of the apostles. Something's out of whack here. They come down and they just saw Elijah. Elijah is supposed to come before all things are restored, but here he just showed up. And he says he did come, and they did with him whatever they wanted to. Then they proceed. He was talking about John the Baptist. So you can see the twofold fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi. John the Baptist did come in the spirit of Elijah. He came like Elijah, doing Elijah-like things and revealing the Messiah. But Elijah does finally come as Malachi had promised to reveal that the Messiah is God, that God is on his way to his temple. And now, of course, we're heading to Jerusalem. All right, chapter 17... Verse twenty two. Notice again, and they were gathering Galilee Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is to be delivered in the hands of men, they will kill him, he will be raised on the third day. They were greatly distressed. We hear this over and over in every episode now, that line. Turn over to chapter twenty chapter twenty, verse seventeen. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn Him to death and deliver Him to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. Notice, never talk about the crucifixion without the resurrection. Right? Verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Him, With their sons, and kneeling before him, she asked for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said, command that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) They're heading to Jerusalem, and he's going to die. This is not what you're thinking of. It's not going to go the way you think. She's asking that they might sit on his left and on his right. In his kingdom, she's imagining him going there, killing Pontius Pilate, killing Herod. The enemy is gone. And he sits on his throne in glory as the king, like Solomon. And the guy on his left on his right are the two primary positions. And he says, can you drink from the cup from which I will drink? Oh, yeah. Sure. We can do that. We'll share your cup. So this is the image of sitting. You have the cup being passed from the king. And they share the cups. Oh, yeah. He says, OK, well you d- we'll drink from the cup. But to sit on my left my right is not for me to give. They're going to find out what he's talking about when they get there. And who was the first apostle to drink from that cup? James, right? The sons of Zebedee were the first and the last apostles to die. Like bookends on this story, Right? So verse 29, as they went out to Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Again, you can track him on that map. He's heading from Galilee. He's going down the Jordan Valley. And he's passing by Jericho now. You can see that on the map. And he saw two blind men. Verse 30, and behold, two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Have mercy on a son of David. And notice the 2 Samuel 7, this language from the Old Testament. Hopefully it makes sense to you now. Verse 31, and the crowd rebuked him, telling them, Be silent. And they cried out the more, Lord, have mercy on the son of David. And Jesus stopped and called them, saying, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Notice he doesn't tell them to be quiet. Everything is being revealed now. In chapter 21, we're going to see this same thing. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the house of figs, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find an ass tied, a colt with her, and tie them, and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And he will send immediately. This took place, the to was spoken by the prophet tell the daughter of Zion behold your king has come to you humble and mounted on an ass on a colt the foal of an ass what does that make you think of when you hear that why would he do this why would he ride on a donkey there's a prophecy yeah we just saw it right good both all of it together when he walks, rides into Jerusalem, remember, this is the Passover. This is the Pilgrim Feast. Exodus chapter 23, the three Pilgrim Feasts. This is the first of the three Pilgrim Feasts for the year. Jerusalem would have been flooded with pilgrims. And Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. Now, if you're a Roman soldier standing at the gate with a couple other Roman soldiers, Cornelius and uh, Servius and a few other guys, you know, shooting craps on the floor. and All right, it's your turn, Cornelius. Go. What's all that noise? Ah. Uh, some guy riding on a donkey? They're waving palm branches. I don't know. It's your turn. Go ahead. Right? But to those who had eyes to see on that day, something else was going on. Zechariah was being fulfilled. Right? Zechariah was being fulfilled. These Roman soldiers standing around watching this, what is this? What's the big deal? But for the Jews, they understood what was happening. When Jesus says to his disciples, go get a donkey, I'm riding it into Jerusalem. Peter, you got your sword? Okay, get ready right go get the donkey here we go so they go and get the donkey and he rides on it fulfilling Zechariah 99 but if you read the rest of Zechariah as I told you again the, the Old Testament imagery there they always quote from the Old Testament assuming you know the rest of it the next line is and I will destroy the war horse from Jerusalem and you know, imagine the excitement of the Jews Right, and that Cornelius isn't even watching. <laughs> they have no idea. So he's going in on a donkey. Why would he ride on a donkey? Because Deuteronomy chapter 17, the one law, there was one law in the, all, in the whole Torah for the king. When you go into the land, which I will bring you into, you may have a king over you. I'll let you do that. But he must be one I will choose. Shaul, he will be chosen. And he must not do three things. He must not multiply his gold and silver. He must not multiply his horses and chariots. He better not get them from Egypt. And he better not multiply his wives lest his heart be turned away. Does anyone's wife turn your heart away? Anyone? Anyone want to talk about your wife turning your heart away? What's going on there in the context? This is all political ways that the king in the ancient world kept himself on a throne. If the army was coming, gold and silver, he could buy off an army or he could buy an army to fight for him. We see this happen in the Old Testament a number of times. Hezekiah even, great Hezekiah sends out gold to stave off the Assyrians the first time. And they turn around, ah, that's pretty good, thanks. We'll make sure you send it next year. So the um, Ahaz, Hezekiah's dad, originally brought the Assyrians in with cash. He sent them gold and silver. He sent them money. He said, come on in and save me from the northern kingdom of Israel and from Syria who are fighting. And so the Assyrians come in. Thanks for the money. Yeah, we'll do that for you. So you can buy off an army or you can buy an army if you need to for a war. It keeps you on the throne. Marriage alliances as well. Marriage alliances. They did this in Europe. This is why the kings of Europe kind of look funny. They intermarried over and over again. right? Now these were somewhat Christian kings. But back then what they did was they would marry the daughters of the harems of the kings in the region. These were marriage alliances. They make a treaty with them. Solomon's first wife that we have recorded in 1 Kings chapter 4 it was a marriage alliance. It says right there with Egypt. Right? If you're, as soon as he comes on the throne, thinking like a, a regular man, a king of an earthly kingdom, you want to make sure Egypt is in your pocket. Right? So he marries the daughter of Pharaoh. And remember, they had multiple wives this time, the harems, and therefore they had lots of boys and girls. And so the girls, they would use them as pawns in these marriage alliances. And then they also had the horses and the chariots, especially the Egyptian ones. Those were the F-16s of the ancient world, right? So you want an Egyptian horse, an Egyptian chariot if you go to battle. God says to the king, not for you. My king, the king who sits on the throne in Israel, who is going to represent me, he shall ride a donkey. You don't go to war on a donkey. It doesn't work, Right? You don't go up against an Egyptian war horse and a chariot riding a donkey. The donkey will just buck you off. Right? But he does. That's what he's supposed to do, at least. But they didn't in the Old Testament. David kind of did halfway. He had a mule. So Jesus rides in on a donkey, showing them he is the fulfillment of Zechariah. He is the great Messiah they've been waiting for. And he is going to destroy the war horse from Jerusalem. It's not the way they thought. You can read it in two different ways if you were in the crowds there at the time. Then, notice what they say. They say, Hoshinah, son of David, save us. Hoshinah, save us please, save us. Again, this is reminds me of uh, Psalm 118 and the great Messianic Psalms. The king is coming to Jerusalem and they realize he is the Messiah. All the crowds believe he is the Messiah they've been waiting for. And in fact, when he gets to the temple, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out those who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. He's not in the temple building itself. This is in the area of the court of the Gentiles. And he said to them, written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of thieves. This is a place where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to come and pray to the God of Israel. And the Jews were using it as a, a bazaar. Verse 14, And the blind lame came to him the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children cried out in the temple, Hosanna, save, please, O son of David. They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast brought perfect praise? And leaving, he went out of the city to Bethany and Lodger. This is Bethany on the other side of Mount Olivet, not over on the other side of the Jordan. So he leaves there. Verse 19, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves only. And he said to them, may fruit never come from you again, and it withered. That's not very nice. (laughs) You ever seen a fig tree wither? Go out, there's some, don't do it here. But there are some branches outside, there are figs outside. If you break one of those leaves off, don't do it, I'll be watching you. But if you break one of those leaves off, within an hour that leaf is crispy. They dry up very quickly. You cut a fig tree down, within 10 minutes you'll see the leaves starting to droop. It's dramatic with a fig tree. And they see him speak to this fig tree, it doesn't have figs. Well, you know, figs come in the Middle East in the spring and in the fall. This is Passover time, there should be maybe some figs, maybe some small ones, there's nothing on it, it's empty. Seems a little overdone. Poor fig tree. But what's going on here? This is a prophetic sign like everything else he is doing. The prophets prophesied by word and by action, and he curses the fig tree because the fig tree is a symbol of Jerusalem and the temple, and he has just found it with no fruit. And it is about to be cursed like that fig tree. But to see him do that, you've got to come back from the break. So, let's take a break now.
1: Who were Noah's three sons? So that's right. And which one received the blessing? Shem. Shem had a great, 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 great grandson that God called back to the Holy Land to receive in his inheritance. His name was? Abraham. And Abraham's son? Isaac and Isaac's son. Two sons? Which one was older? Which one received the blessing? That's right. God prefers the younger. Welcome back, my older brother.
2: Except when the younger is not humble. <laughs> okay. All right. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Look what happens here. Then Jesus said to the crowd, so he's, he left, he went over to Bethany, right? He went down the Kidron Valley and went up over the hill, over the Mount of Olives to Bethany. And he lodged there. This was a place when Jesus was down in Judea. He intended to hang out in Bethany. This is where Martha and Mary's house was. But when he was up in Galilee, he tended to hang up in, in, Capernaum, in Capernaum. So, he's down in Judea, and so this is the place where he lodges. So, at night, when he's done in Jerusalem, he goes down the Kidron Valley, up the hill, up over Mount Olivet, to the little town of Bethany. Now, he's returned in the morning from Bethany. He's come over the hill, and along the way, he sees a fig tree. And he curses it, as we saw. No figs on it. It didn't have its fruit. And again, this is a prophecy, a prophetic action in the prophets of the Old Testament... Not only do you see him doing stuff like this, but you also see the fig and the olive, both of them, especially the fig tree, though, is a symbol of Israel or the temple, number of ways in which it's used. Here, it's pretty obvious a reference to Jerusalem and the temple. Especially when you pick up here in chapter 23, he begins to say this. Once he arrives back in Jerusalem that same morning, chapter 23, then... Then said Jesus to the disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice observe whatever they tell you, but don't do as they do. What? So he says to them, verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Again, kingdom of heaven. This is not the clouds here, right? Otherwise, now you know, the joke should have not only Peter at the pearly gate with the key, but you should have a scribe or a Pharisee standing there, right? That's not what the image is, right? He's talking about the kingdom of God, the, God's kingdom that's being reestablished, the church. Verse 16 Woe to you, blind guides. And he gives them example after example of various things the Pharisees and the scribes who hang out with him do and have great responsibility, and yet they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're telling the people the right things, and yet they're not doing them themselves. You see Jesus throughout these woes, criticizing a number of the Pharisees' practices. Verse 23, tithing on mint, dill, cumin. But what about the weightier things of the law? Right? They thought, well, we, we do that, so therefore we never forget the barley and wheat. yeah. That's right, but what about love God and your neighbors yourself, the fulfillment of the law? Why did I have to go up to Matthew at his tax collector's booth and call him to come? Why did I have to go to the parlor in the street and say, you, come. Where were you? So they're worried about making sure they tie them the barley and wheat, and therefore they tie their mint and dill even as well, and yet they've missed the point of it all. God doesn't need wheat and barley. He surely doesn't need the mint, the dill, and the cumin. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build in the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in them and shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons. What does he mean? This is sons of. This is a Semitic play here. To be son of. They say, We are descendants. Woe that our fathers did that. They mean their ancestors. And he says, Therefore, You testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who did it. Right? Sons of, disciples of. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, brood of vipers. How are you to escape from the sentence to Gehenna? Fiery Gehenna. Ge ben Hinnom. This is the valley of the sons of Hinnom. This was not the Kidron Valley, the other side. As far as we can discern, a trash heap of the time, This is a place where, you think of a third world city today with the garbage dump, right? The poor are living there. There's wild animals, dogs running around. There's smoking. It's it's a dangerous place. Criminals hang out there. This is the image of eternal punishment for them. Verse 34, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men, scribes, some of them will kill and crucify. Some of you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And when is that? First century synagogues. And upon you may come. Upon you. Who is the you? the group he's talking to, right? Upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barakai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all this will come upon This generation, this wicked generation, seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it, but the sign of Jonah. This wicked generation, over and over. The wicked generation should recall for you Moses' condemnation of the people of Israel who refused to go in to the promised land. That was the wicked, the crooked generation. If you want to go in, you must be like the little children. It's only the kids that made it into the promised land. Chapter 23, verse, uh, make sure you highlight verse 36 there. This generation, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets, stoning those who were sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, and you would not behold, your house is forsaken, desolate. Uh-oh, desolate, forsaken? That's what God promised he would do when Solomon finished building the temple. God said to Solomon, that's great, I'll be here forever, if if you don't go off and worship other gods. If you go go off and worship other gods, I will forsake this temple, and it will become a heap of ruins. Well, that already happened once, and they were deep into polytheism at that time. The temple under Manasseh had become a pantheon. But here now, the temple, they think they are righteous. Again, tithing on the milk and the dill, therefore they don't break the law. They make sure they get their barley and wheat into the barns and tithe on that as well. They're missing the point of the whole thing. They have turned the temple into an idol, as Stephen will say, just before they kill him in Acts chapter 7. They've taken the works of their hands and they're worshiping it. They've made it something that it's not. It's supposed to be the place where the glory cloud of God is, and that's the only relevance of it. And yet, the glory cloud of God has not returned to that temple as Ezekiel had promised it would eventually come. Because the glory cloud of God is standing there in front of them in the flesh of Christ. He is the temple of God. And they've missed it. And so, he says the temple is forsaken and it will be destroyed. And he says, verse 38, Behold, your house forsaken desolate, for I tell you you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away and his disciples came out to him and pointed out to him the building of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things, do you? Truly I say to you, there will be not left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. People often think about and say, well, if this is 70 AD, it didn't seem to happen. I mean, I've seen the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall, that's the foundation, the flattening out of the little hills and things so that they could make the temple platform on which to build the temple building itself. The temple itself sat where the Dome of the Rock is today. It wasn't very big, it was much bigger than the Dome of the Rock, but it wasn't a, didn't take up that whole flat area. That flat area you see when you see an overlook of Jerusalem, that is the foundation area where they built up over these hills to make this flat area. But the temple itself, not one stone of it is still there today, it is gone. Verse 3, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will this be, what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? This is a Semitic way of speaking. You see them, they're asking the same thing three times. When will this be? The close of the age, destruction of Jerusalem, absolutely the close of an age. How is it going to happen? Jesus is coming. The Messiah is going to return to do these things, he says. He told them this a number of times already. So the when will these things happen and the close of the age and the coming of the Son of Man is all the same thing. And I can tell you that with confidence because we have Mark and Luke. If you go and you compare this line to Mark and Luke, you see Luke translates this for a Gentile audience in a perfectly good Gentile Greek, and he simply says, when will this take place? Unfortunately, from here, many people come to the text now and interpret one line in reference to destruction of Jerusalem, another line in reference to the end of the world, another reference into who knows what, and it becomes very subjective. But rather, if you leave it in the historical context, and you read it as, for example, the Gentile Luke shows us, you'll see in Matthew's Gospel, clearly, a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem. You'll hear of rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. We know from Josephus that all these things happened just before the destruction came in the 60s. Verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because the wickedness is multiplied most men's love will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Remember that? Back from chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 23, I had you mark that. You go back there and look there and you'll see you Use that same language there. He who endures the persecutions during that time. You'll hear that come up again in the book of Revelation which is talking about the persecutions during the time of Domitian in the 90s. Enduring to the end. You've got to make it through. Don't apostatize. Verse 14, in this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. English translations, people usually miss it here. Whole world, we think, NASA imagery, big blue ball. That's not what they're thinking. In fact, in the Greek here, it's not, it's not world. It's eukomene, the inhabited thing. This is the civilized world. So this is the Roman Empire. And by the time 70 AD came, the gospel had been preached to the ends of the inhabited world, to the ends of the Roman Empire. As a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And again, if you think of that chronology in the late 60s, and then it did come. Verse 15, so when you see the desolate sacrifice spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. What's he talking about there? That's a reference back to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel saw at a vision of a abomination of desolation, this image that would be in the temple. What is it? Most commentators see that and very likely hear a reference to the coming profanation of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes. That's about 160 and he did this. This is recorded in 1 Maccabees. Uh, he sacrificed pigs on the altar and stuff, it was a horrible thing, and killed a number of the Jews. And this begins the Maccabean Revolution. You guys have read First Maccabees, you know this. So what's he talking about here? That was something obviously that had taken place a long time before. I don't know, and commentator's debate exactly what he's referring to here. We know Pontius Pilate was doing a lot of really foolish things at this time. He was allowing, never in the history of the Roman Empire, or even the Greeks before, controlling this region. They were always very careful about polytheism and pagan imagery. By the time you get to Pontius Pilate, now controlling this region, especially Jerusalem, he's beginning to allow a number of things that are really irritating the Jews. He's allowing, first of all, Cesar was a flourishing city filled with pagan temples. He was allowing the money to be printed with the image of Caesar on it now, which they'd never done before. He was allowing the Roman Empire and the armies to carry the Roman standard, If you want to read about this, you can read Josephus, the Jewish historian who records the destruction of Jerusalem. He talks about all the really foolish things Pilate did that eventually probably led to the rebellions that finally brought the Roman Empire in. So what is he talking about here? Some theorized this is Pontius Pilate doing something in the temple, one of the images he may be allowed in the temple. Either way, important for you is look at that note, let the reader understand. That's not Jesus saying that. Jesus isn't sitting on Mount Olivet, and they're asking him about what's going on, what are the signs, and Jesus begins to describe these things to him and says, and let the reader understand. And he keeps going, right? Imagine Peter and John. Reader? What reader? What are you talking about? This is a note to you, the audience, to the audience outside the gospel, by the writer of the text, that the things that he's talking about are happening right now. You pay attention. Pay close attention right now. When was this written? Most people think sometime in the mid to late 60s. Then he says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If This is the end of the world. Fleeing to the mountains from Judea isn't going to make a difference. And why just in Judea? And this is the destruction of Jerusalem it makes a lot of sense. Verse 17, let him who is in the housetop not go down to take what is his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to take his mantle. He says, if you're up on the roof, this isn't modern roofs today. In the Middle East, the roofs were flat. It was like how the back patio functions for us. That's how they used their roofs. So they would be up on the roof a number of times. You see Peter in Acts chapter 10, up there praying. Right? It's a flat area. They would store stuff up there. So he said, if you're up on your roof, you have any big, basically, on your back deck, modern English, and you hear these things or you see these signs, run. Don't even go back in the house to pack lunch. Just run. If you're out in the field plowing with your ox, and you get a sense that this is all taking place now. Just run. Don't go back home. It's too late by then. If it's the end of the world, it really doesn't matter if you're plowing or if you're up on the roof. If you take this out of the context and make this all about the end of the world, then there's a lot of weird stuff going on here. Put in the context, it makes sense. Especially the next line. He says, Pray that your flight may not be on the winter or on the Sabbath. If it's the end of the world, I think it'd be nice if the end of the world came during the winter. I don't like the winter, I'm from California. So if we could end that, cut that short, that'd be nice. But this is the winter. This is traveling. Imagine trying to travel. This is before modern you know, Cadillacs and stuff like that. Trying to travel with your family in the middle of winter out of Jerusalem. And imagine if it's on the Sabbath. What happens if you drive down one of the conservative quarters in Jerusalem today, in the Jewish quarter? They throw rocks. They stone the car, right? If you get out, you'll be dead. Rocks flying and stuff like that. What do you think they would have done back then? Imagine, in the morning, right? It's, if they've realized that all the signs are happening and it's the Sabbath, it's cold, and you pull out with your cart in the morning, the dry, you know, roll up your garage door and you're coming out with your cart. Come on, come on, honey, let's go, let's go. And then all of a sudden, as you're coming out, it's early in the morning, it's still dark. Avraham, your neighbor, says, Yaakov, where are you going? Uh, nowhere. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Clove, you know, um, uh, you know, it's the Sabbath today. We're supposed to be going to the synagogue. Come on, we walk down the night every Sabbath, right? Yeah, I got to go to grandma's house. Uh, we'll be, honey, run. So imagine the situation. They'd persecute him. They were killing the Christians already by time you get 70 AD. Nero is burning them as torches in his garden parties. Imagine when they were doing Jerusalem to them. Verse 22, and if those days not been shortened, no human being would be saved. Again, he's talking about the Christians there. It's, this is out of his mercy. He's going to shorten this horrible time. And then he says, verse 25, I've told you beforehand, so if they say he is in the wilderness, don't go out there. If they say he's in the inner room, don't go. When I come back, it'll be like lightning from the east to the west. Everyone's going to see it. Be in the sky. Josephus tells us they actually saw visions of the angelic chariots and things circling Jerusalem. The Jews in Jerusalem said, God's come to save us from the Romans. But Josephus says, but the wiser among them said, no, he's come to kill us again. So they realized when they saw these visions in the skies that this was not God coming to defend them. But rather, it was the destruction happening again. Ezekiel saw this vision. Ezekiel chapter 9, he saw the vision of the destruction of Jerusalem. saw the angelic forces coming with the Babylonians. He says, verse 28, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered. Cryptic language, Matthew's Gospel, written for Christians in Palestine. Right? For us, it's cryptic. For them, it wasn't. So, eagles. The eagle in the ancient world, the eagle, vulture, they were the birds of the air. The carnivores. They ate anything. We think of an eagle, you know, because of America. It's this beautiful animal, whatever. But, you know, eagles will eat carrion as well. For them, it's basically the same thing. And so he says, where the body is, there the eagle will be gathered. This is an image of Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, like vultures surrounding a corpse about to eat. And this happened, literally, when the Roman standard was surrounding Jerusalem right before its destruction. All the Roman armies holding their standards up, surrounded by the vultures or the eagles. Right from the Jerusalem standpoint, there were vultures coming. From the army of the Rome, they were the eagles. Right? Make a note for yourself there to Luke chapter twenty-one, verse twenty, and we'll turn there in a second. Verse twenty-nine. Immediately after that tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark, and the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from the sky. Again, people think about this. Sounds like the end of the world. This is in all the prophets. The prophets talk about the end of an era in this language. Make a note for yourself to Isaiah chapter 13. We don't have time to turn there and look at it, but Isaiah chapter 13 is the prophecy of the destruction of Babylon. And he uses this exact same language. Earthquakes, nations gathering together. The earth will quake. The sky, the, the heavens will be shaken. The sun will be dark and the moon, I give us light, the stars will fall from the sky. You'll hear variants of this in some of the prophets. Amos says the moon will be turned to blood. Right? So there will be a violent end. The sun, the moon, the stars were, Genesis chapter 1, day 4, were created to give light on the earth and therefore to be ways of tell time, the days, the months, the seasons, the years. And so when they cease to give their light, that is, time is up. It'd be an idiom today of saying, and the clock stopped, or something like that. Time was up for an empire. Again, you can go back to look at Isaiah chapter 13. Hold your hand there and flip over to Luke chapter 21 very quickly. Luke chapter 21. Thank God we have Luke here to translate for a Gentile audience some of this Semitic idiom. Matthew's assuming you as a Palestinian Christian know the Old Testament, know all the prophets. Luke tends to explain things for us a little bit. Luke chapter 21, not eagles surrounding a body, but look at this. Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 20, "...but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those who are out of the country not enter in. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written Alas for those days. For those who have child in those days, or give suck in those days..." Right? You can imagine a nursing mother trying to flee with this. "...for great distress shall be upon the earth, and wrath upon the people. They will fall on the edge of the sword." he will be led captive among the nations. All Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles are fulfilled. Verse 25, sun, the moon, the stars will not give their light, fall from the sky. Look at Luke's version. And there will be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars. A Jew, a Palestinian Christian in the first century, in Matthew's Gospel, they hear this language, they know the prophets, and they know what that language means. They know Genesis chapter 1. But a Gentile audience, Luke has to kind of explain it a bit. and He just simply says, there will be signs in the sky. Okay? That's it. All right, so back to chapter 24 of Matthew. He says here in verse 30 that all the tribes of the land will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He warned them about this back in chapter 10, verse 23. He said, you will not have gone through all the villages of Israel when the Son of Man comes. He says in chapter 16, that last line, chapter 16, he says, I will come with my angels and bring vengeance upon those who have done these things. Verse 34, make sure you highlight this, verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation, the same one we've been hearing about over and over again, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away, again, that's oath formula, heaven and earth would be more likely to pass away than what I've just said, the heavens and the earth, Isaiah chapter 1, are the symbols of stability, they never change, they never move, they never go away. Man dies. Man is born. Man dies. That nations come and go. The heavens and the earth remain the same. And so, his words are as sure as the the existence of the heavens and the earth. You can bet on this. Modern English idiom. When did this happen? This generation. How long is a biblical generation? Forty years. years, Right. Jesus says this around thirty to thirty-three, depending on when you count. The war starts in sixty-eight. Is done in seventy. Forty years exactly. Why 40 years? Why not less than that? Because of the mercy of God. Peter himself will say this in his epistle that if you think the coming of the Lord is delayed, it's because he is merciful. It's only because he is merciful. Giving you as much time to be ready and repentant for when he arrives. Okay, now over to chapter 26. When Jesus finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. We hear about them planning to arrest him. We hear about Judas and his betrayal. Verse 20. When it was evening, he sat at table with his twelve disciples, celebrating the Passover meal. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Again, we know about this story about Judas. Verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke. He gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the, cup of the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. blood of the covenant should remind you of Exodus chapter twenty. For the blood of the covenant of the Old Testament, right? And here is the new blood of the new covenant. What's going on here? Why is he doing this? What's the Passover meal all about? Exodus chapter 12, it was from death to life that the Passover brought them, right? Israel was in Egypt, in paganism, surrounded by the Egyptians. And God brought them out of Egypt, out of the paganism, the polytheism of wicked Egypt out of darkness to light, from death to life. How did he do it? He gave them each a lamb. They took the Passover lamb. They sacrificed it to appease an angry God. No, that's paganism. The lamb gave its life that Israel might live. They took the blood. They put it on the doorpost. They ate it. And the, when the angel of death passed through, he passed over, right? Pasach, or Pascha in the Aramaic, the Passover. He passed over the houses of Israel, that their firstborn might live. The firstborn is a sign of the continuation of a family line. Right? Okay, so then, notice what he says here. He's, he's not talking about the lamb in the Old Testament here, it's flesh, but his own flesh and blood. He is going to be the one that dies, that gives his life that the new Israel might live. Again, this is not a sacrifice, appeasing the wrath of an angry God. This is the gift of of something for the sake of another, which is what sacrifice is all about in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Notice what else he says here. Obviously, you know these passages, the Eucharistic imagery here. He says, give thanks. Eucharistia, thanksgiving, or the verb, evkaristeo. This is where we get our modern word, English word, Eucharist. But what else is happening here? He is Melchizedek, right? He is the king and priest of Jerusalem offering up the bread and wine. A lot of really rich imagery here. And the epistle to the Hebrews talks a lot about that. He shows them that he is the great fulfillment of even the first priest of the Bible and the first king of Jerusalem. Here he is, the last great king of Jerusalem and the priest from which all priesthood flows. Then they went out and they sung a hymn. These are singing the Psalms, Psalm 115 to 118. And they went out into the Garden of Gethsemane and he began to pray, and he tells the disciples, pray with me, watch with me. Why does he say this? This is because back in Exodus chapter 12, they were supposed to stay up all night for the Passover, praying and watching. And so he says, stay up and pray, watch with me. And then the crowds come and take him. They take him to Caiaphas' house, and he begins to be interrogated by the high priest. This is recorded in verse 57 and following. They brought false witnesses against him. And they said, verse 60, this man said he would destroy this temple and rebuild it. Verse 62, and the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 63, But Jesus was silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Again, living God. It's very Semitic. You can hear the Semitic flavor of Matthew's Gospel. By the living God, as opposed to the stone dead gods of the pagans. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. Again, Semitic idiom. Go over to Mark's Gospel. If you look at the parallel in Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, I am. So he answers, yes. And that's why he says, but I tell you hereafter, you, this is plural in the Greek, you, the high priest, and all of you standing here, will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he says, I am the Messiah you've been waiting for, and you're in big trouble. (laughs) Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, fulfilled. And the high priest, of course, tears his garments and says, what more witness do we need? Chapter 27, verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor. This is Pilate. So he stands before the Jewish council. The Jews and the Levites, the priests here, they find no wrong in him. He has not done anything against the law. They just don't believe him. He goes before the Roman governor. And the Roman governor, Pilate here, will inquire, ask him, what have you done? And we'll notice that Pontius Pilate can find no Roman law that he's broken. He's completely innocent by the Jewish law. He's completely innocent by the Roman law. But they both decide to kill him anyway. You can see this in all the Gospels. In John's Gospel, he really shows this clearly. Three times Pontius Pilate says, I proclaim him innocent. And then, he turns and hands him over to be crucified. So, who handed him over in the first place? Who asked for Barabbas instead of him? The Jews. Who crucified Jesus? The Jews and the Romans. The people crucified Jesus. Make sure you note, God didn't crucify Jesus. As you read through Acts the Apostles, you'll find over and over, Acts the Apostles tells you, the Jews, the Romans, the people killed him, but... God raised him from the dead. Because God is the author of history. He can bring good out of any evil. You'll never find in Acts of the Apostles an angry God, an angry father, and some sort of cosmic child abuse beating up on his son for something someone else did. And that's Calvinism. Chapter 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he said, you have said so. Verse 24, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, verse 24, But rather the riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this righteous man's blood. See to it yourselves. Again, notice he proclaims him innocent, identifies, he knows he's innocent. And yet, in verse 26, he hands him over to be scourged, even though he's identified him as innocent. And he hands him over, it says, to be crucified. Verse 27, Then the soldiers, the governor, took Jesus in the praetorium, and they gathered the whole battalion together, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe upon him, and played in a crown of thorns. They put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat upon him. You should read Paul for you, Isaiah 53, the Suffering Servant Psalms. Now, hold your hand there and flip over to Wisdom, the Book of Wisdom for a second. Wisdom, chapter 2. The Book of Wisdom is a wonderful book. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it for you. There's a lot of allusions to it in the New Testament. Most people don't perceive them because they don't know the Book of Wisdom. But one of those allusions, the most important ones, happens here in Matthew's Gospel and is a playoff of Wisdom chapters 1, 2, and 3. The Book of Wisdom in this first part of the book compares the ways of the wicked versus the ways of the righteous, the ways of the fool versus the ways of the wise man. And it says in chapter 1 how great the wise are who follow the ways of God. But it says in chapter 1, verse 16, But the ungodly, chapter 1, verse 16, by their words and deeds summon death. And so as you read through the rest of chapter 2, you hear about the wise versus the wicked over and over. And in chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, we hear about the wicked scheming against the wise man. It says... Let us lie in wait for the righteous man because he is inconvenient to us and opposes our action. He reproaches us for our sins against the Torah and accuses us of sins against our training. Verse 13, he professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself the child of the Lord. He became to us a reproof our thoughts. The very sight of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of others and his ways are strange." We are considered, verse 16, by him something base, and he avoids our ways as unclean. He calls the last end of the righteous happy and boasts that God is his Father. Let us see if his words are true. Let us test what will happen at the end of his life. For the righteous man is God's Son. He will help him and will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. Let us test him with insult and torture, and we will find out how gentle, how weak he is and make trial of his forbearance. Let us condemn him in a shameful death, for according to what he says, he will be protected. Thus they reasoned, but they were led astray, for their wickedness blinded them, verse 22, and they did not know the secret purposes of God, nor hope for the wages of holiness, nor discern the prize for the blameless souls. For, verse 23, highlight this, God created man for immortality, incorruption, And he made him in the image of his eternity. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and following. But through the devil's envy death entered the world and those who belong to his party experience it. chapter 3 verse 1. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God. In the eyes of the foolish they seem to have died. Their departure was thought to be an affliction and their going from us to be their destruction. But they are at peace for though in the sight of men they were punished Their hope is full of immortality. Having been disciplined a little, they will receive great good because God tested them and found them worthy of himself. Like gold in the furnace, he tried them like a sacrificial burnt offering. He accepted them. In the time of their visitation, they will shine forth and will run like sparks through the stubble. They will govern nations and rule over peoples and the Lord will reign over them forever." You can see the imagery here in Matthew's gospel coming of course you can also see here hopefully Daniel chapter 7 and the victory of the people of God over the enemies Matthew chapter 27 they crucified him verse 38 and the two robbers were crucified with him one on the right one on the left verse 39 and those who passed by derided and wagging their heads Saying, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Here are the languages of the book of wisdom. So also the chief priests or the scribes and the elders mocked him. He saved others. Can he not save himself? He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. You know, all these clear allusions back to wisdom. He said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land. with the ninth hour, so this is uh, six hours from noon until three o'clock, and about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, ali, lama Why would he say that? Jesus is not losing his faith. As you'll hear sometimes people say, I remember there was a Protestant radio station, a Protestant minister actually says, you know, sometimes we weaken our faith and we can find consolation, then even Jesus stumbled here and there, you know? What? This is Psalm 22 or Psalm 21, depending on you count. This is the Psalm of faith. And by the way, in Aramaic, not azad but... Uh, not Hebrew but Aramaic. We can see here in a number of places Jesus speak in Aramaic. He recited the Psalms in Aramaic, the, the Jews of the time. This is what they did. We talked about this in the first night. We talked about the language of this gospel in its initial form. So why would he say this? Because he sees Psalm 22 as being fulfilled here. Right? Here it is. And those who have eyes to see and ears to hear and know the Psalms know what's going on this is a song that talks about horrible persecutions upon david he's surrounded by crowds lions and dogs are piercing his hands his feet as he's trying to stave them off with their teeth his enemies are surrounded these aren't lions and dogs they're his enemies in a battle and they've already planned his death they've taken his garments they've divided then they figure out which oh, i'll take his cloak you get his he's in the midst of the battle it's almost over it looks like he's going to lose the battle And yet, he's victorious in the end by the hand of God. Psalm 22. Now, why would someone say something so foolish on the radio? Why would people think that this is Jesus losing his faith? Because we don't know the Psalms. We fill our heads with all sorts of modern songs. We even fill our heads with songs that we've invented that we sing in church. And we don't know the songs of the early church. And so therefore, we don't understand much of the New Testament. Or the old. Okay, Matthew chapter twenty seven, verse fifty, and Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse fifty one, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, many of the bodies of the saints, the holy ones, who had fallen asleep, were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and all this, they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Oops. Bad move. Really, really bad move, as Peter will say in Acts the Apostles. Verse 55. There were also many women there looking on from afar who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, the women disciples of the Lord. All right, where are the rest of the disciples? They all fled, except for John. We see in John's gospel, John is the only one who hangs out there at the cross. The rest are gone. Peter's denied him three times. But the women disciples are there. Mary Magdalene, Salome, the faithful women, standing there and waiting and watching. His mother Verse 57, And when the evening there came, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered to be given, and Joseph took the body, wrapped in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own tomb, which he had hewn in the rock, and he rolled a great stone in the door of the tomb, and departed Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the sepulcher. Why are so many girls named Mary? This is, we even have it today, right? Mary, well, Miriam, the, the sister of Moses. Right? They named their children after the great figures of salvation history. And so, Christians today name their first daughter sometimes, Mary, or why do we do this? Because of Mary, the Theotokos, right? And what she was there in the story of Jesus. So important for us as we know. Here, they are naming their girls Mary because of Miriam, right? the sister of Moses. You remember her in the Exodus story, how important she was. They named them Judas, Simon, Matthias, these are the names of the Maccabean warriors, Jacob, Israel. Uh, these are the names of the individuals from the Old Testament. So we have that same tradition. Verse 62, next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive after three days, I will rise again, therefore order the sepulcher to be made secure until the third day. Lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell his people, He has risen from the dead and the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said, Do you have a guard? Seal up the tomb, do it yourself. Chapter 28, now after the Sabbath, all four Gospels... Begin the resurrection era this way. After the Sabbath was over, remember Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. It's a funny division there. The end of the creation account there, the seven-day creation story, concludes with the seventh day, but there is no evening and no morning. Every other day has a close. This one was intended to be eternal. It has finally come to a close and we have the beginning of a new day. The followers of the church and you can even see it in Peter's first epistle, see the resurrection as the eighth day of the old creation and the first day of the new creation. From the old into the new. We can have another lecture sometime on baptism. We'll talk about this stuff. Chapter 8. After the Sabbath was over, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to the sea of the sepulcher, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, his rain was white as snow, and the fear the guards fell, trembled like dead men. Why was the stone rolled back? Not so Jesus could get out, but so we could get in. Right? So we could see. It's part of the gospel proclamation. Well, I know that. That's pretty obvious here. Look at the end of Mel Gibson's movie. Right? Horrible scene. Thing roll, the stone rolls back. You see Jesus, the shadow of him coming out like out of Plato's cave. What's going on there? The stone didn't roll back so Jesus could get out. The stone rolled back so we could see that he was alive. That he'd come out of the tomb long before this. The resurrection, no one saw it. But we can see the signs of the resurrection. The tomb is empty. We can even go in there and we will we will St. Paul says those who have been baptized into Christ have died with him and risen with him to newness of life again that's for another lecture on baptism we'll talk about that verse 5 but the angel said to the women do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified he is not here for he has risen as he said come see the place where he lay then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. Where are the disciples? Right? So the fathers of the church, they see an image here of the garden again. Right? Here they are in a garden. And here the new Eve. Right? The women disciples go to tell the men the good news instead of the bad news. Instead of bringing the fruit to Adam, they bring the good news, the fruit of the resurrection. Verse 8, So they departed quickly from the tomb, fear and great joy ran, and they tell the disciples, verse 9, Behold, Jesus met them and said, Hail! And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren, Go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And they said, Don't worry, we'll take care of it for you. And that rumor is spread among the Jews even to today, Matthew says. Again, you can hear the Palestinian imagery here. That's not in Mark or Luke or John. That's only in Matthew's gospel, that record of that lie being passed around. Why is it here? Because this gospel was written down for a Christian community in Palestine that already knew the story. right? But this story is a record before Matthew dies of everything he'd been telling them over and over again. And this living and oral proclamation of the gospel to those Christians Verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Some doubted. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, look at this, of all nations. Back in chapter 10 when he sent the disciples out on that little trial, he said, Go nowhere among the uh, the Gentiles and Samaritans, only the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now in the second part of the gospel... We're finding out that he is not simply the son of David, but he is the son of Abraham. This is the book of the genealogy of this Jesus, the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Through your seed, all the nations shall be blessed. Genesis chapter 12. And so he says, now go out to all nations. And what does he tell them to do? Make sure you highlight this. Baptize them. This is what's missing from our Christian proclamation today. Someone goes up and witnesses to someone about Jesus, and they never mention the resurrection and baptism. But if you read the early church fathers, if you read Acts the Apostles, if you see the epistles of St. Paul, you'll see that something is central always in their proclamation of the gospel, that is Jesus has trampled down death by his death, and you can too, once you are baptized into his body. You will die with him and rise with him, and you will put on Christ and walk in newness of life, solving finally the problem from the very beginning. And he says, Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Catechesis. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Most commentators see this obviously as a framing device all the way back to the beginning. Emmanuel. God is with us.
1: And He is. Thank you, Father Sebastian. Thank you very much for a wonderful presentation and thank you all for your dedication over the last week. This is the most number of hours the Institute has ever had programs in one week. Six hours in one week. So... Alright, we'll take a short break. For those who want to stay around for Q&A, at least stand up and stretch your leg. My brother finished his wonderful presentation with the point that Jesus remains with us always, but last time I checked, He ascended into heaven. So, how do you reconcile those two things? Oh, well-educated faithful. In the Eucharist? Okay. Go out and teach all nations, baptizing them. And as my brother just said, when we are baptized, what happens to us? Into Christ. Christ is present today. He is present in His church. And that's not just a nice way of Deacon Sabatino kind of fuzzing over the Bible story. It's a reality. And it's a reality that we better figure out in our church. The church is the revelation of Christ on earth. And when somebody beholds a Christian, when they behold you baptized into Christ, they look into the eyes of Jesus Christ Himself. And that's why Peter and John, just after Pentecost, when they went down to the temple and they saw the paralytic begging, they said, we have no money, but we will give you what we do have. Look into our eyes and stand up. Only Jesus can do that. If you want to have the power of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, we better come to a realization that Christ is living in us and we are His hands and His feet. And then we'll start to make a difference in this world. Okay.
0: Did any of the Pharisees who heard Jesus recite Psalm 22, did they recognize it for what it
2: was? That's a really good question. And I don't know. We do know that there was some confusion. When he said that, there were some standing around and said, hey, he's calling for Elijah, right? Eli, Eli, Elihu, Elia. That's very similar. There were many standing around who didn't recognize that he was reciting a psalm. They'd say, well, how could they miss that? Well, just like that guy on the radio, right? How many times do you think when that text gets read in a church, that people, Christians, hear it and don't know how? And they kind of squirm, so uncomfortable. Jesus seems to be losing his faith or something. How tragic, right? I can give you one line. I can even or one word, and you can start reciting for me and singing. And I could do that with other ones. Other, you know, if I gave you "My God, My God, Why Have You Forsaken Me?" How, how many could recite the rest of that psalm? What a tragedy! How could we memorize the Book of Psalms? How could how would that be possible? They did it. They did it. Why? Because they didn't waste their time with Snoop Doggy Dog, Michael Jackson, Elvis, and the sacred cows on eagles' wings. Here I am, Lord, and the rest of that stuff. Right? I know it's the sacred cow. Don't touch that stuff. Oops. But look, all of that stuff is distracting us from the liturgical hymns of the church. Right? So how could they not know it? Mary Magdalene, I guarantee she heard that and said... Wow. I guarantee the mother of our Lord heard that and said, Wow. I guarantee John the evangelist standing there knew exactly what was going on, but there were many gathered around who didn't have the ears, didn't have the eyes to see, and thought he was calling for Elias. Right?
1: Antonio writing in from uh, Detroit, Michigan. You spoke about all Jesus had foretold about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the spreading of the faith in the first century. Does Jesus speak to the current days and times and what leads up to his return?
2: So it's an excellent question. I would say yes and no. Uh, when we find the prophecies of, the, say, the destruction of Jerusalem, this is Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. It's recording all three of them. Uh, he says all of these things will take place before this generation passes away. So it's not picking and choosing, little this, little that. It's all of it. But knowing that, therefore, if this is how God has acted in this particular point in history, we can see that as a way in which he might act or always acts, always does. God is always doing the same thing, right? We just perceive it in different ways because we're in time. And so um, I would say yes and no. Be careful with that. The book of Revelation is about the persecutions during the time of Domitian. When we have a Bible study on that, or those of you who attended those Bible studies earlier, you can go back on the website and, and, and watch those. You'll see that the first chapter and the last chapter of the book, in a number of places, he's talking about the persecutions of the time. And then people ask, but what does that mean for me? What about me? Right? I had one time someone asked me, I was giving a, a Bible study on the Epistle of Romans, and Peter and Paul, was, I think it was for the feast day of Peter and Paul, and, uh, and someone came up to me at break and said, you're saying Romans was written, it wasn't written for me? And it took me a while to figure out what she was asking. She actually believed every time she read Romans, it was written to her as a Roman Catholic. And she said, Well, here it is, me. I said, Look at chapter 16. He tells you the names of the individuals. This was a real church in the city of Rome. They had real coffee socials, they had the whole bit. You know, it was real, 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 real. Now, once you realize what's going on in the first century and why Paul writes the epistle to the church in Rome and what are the issues going on in that little church there, once you understand that in its historical context and you understand why Paul said what he said and to whom he said it, then you can properly apply it to your own life. Sure, there are principles in there, this is the Word of God. And there are principles in there that you can apply to your own life, but you've got to have them anchored first and foremost into the authentic interpretation of the text, and that is what did Paul intend to mean, say when he said stuff. Then we can apply it to our lives, right? So yes and no in a certain sense, yeah.
0: When Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Now this is a big deal. It should have been seen as a big deal. I see it as a destruction of the old covenant and... It's time now for the new. Is Uh that a reasonable interpretation?
2: It is, uh, and there are usually two interpretations of the text. Uh, One is that the curtain has been torn. The curtain, remember, separated the holy of holies from the holy place. The curtain was a sign of the holiness, that which is set apart, right? So the tearing of the curtain, many interpret it as, therefore, the presence of God has now gone forth from the temple to all peoples, and the separation of the Jews and the Gentiles has been done away with. Uh, that's possible. I, In my opinion, I would side with a different group, and I would say that this is a sign that the temple is empty. The temple that Zerubbabel built, that Herod had been rebuilding, is simply empty empty the glory cloud is not there the ark the, when you tear that curtain you should have seen the ark and the glory cloud of god it's not there why because they crucified him but he has risen from the dead right the glory cloud of god is walking among them and we're sitting here as well right as we were talking about baptized into christ as paul says so i, I would interpret that rather as an exposure of the emptiness of the temple there's debate about that thank you father sebastian
0: Pray for us.